Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. All these girls gonna be in the league? Hello, gorgeous. Female fight club. All men must die, but we are not men. Damn it, Kristen! What do you think happened to Karen? Lauren. Girl, her name is Kimberly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 60 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we had to talk about Suicide Squad last night. It's not fun. Like I said last night, I'm sorry. Lauren had quote-unquote work, so... A a likely story. A likely story. I can send you my quote-unquote work, and you can look at it, and you can see why (laughs) I wasn't there. I am Kristen Lopez here this week with Karen. Hold on. No, you're not here with Karen Peterson. I'm going to do that again. (laughs) I'm Kristen Lopez here with Kimberly Pierce. Hello. And Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. Karen Peterson's not here because she's dead to me. I say that (laughs) fluff. She's hanging out with Army Hammer. She's hanging out in a hotel with Army Hammer and Justin Thoreau. And I'm I'm fine. It's fine. (laughs) We're fine. She's fine. She will not be on the podcast next week either, folks. (laughs) I might not be on the podcast next week because I might be having a mental breakdown. Uh, (laughs) But we're going to make the best of it while Karen's out lovingly slutting it up. I mean, no. (laughs) Citizen Dame does not endorse slut shaming of the Citizen Dames. (laughs) We know what you're up to, Karen. We know. We know. We know what's we know. happening. We it's, know her most recent, her new feeling changed, Army Hammer, so... Yeah. It's fine. I'm fine. We're fine. <laughs> We're fine, damn it. I'm fine. Stop asking me if I'm okay. I'm fine. <laughs> we have some news, some garbage men, some questions, some of your questions, some trailers, movie reviews, and... We have not one, but two contest winners to give prizes to. So we got Ooh. a lot to do. Short amount of time to do it. So let's get started with lay garbage. I don't know what the French term is. I think it's actually just garbage. It's a universal word. So there you go. We're going to go back to Neil deGrasse Tyson. As I said last episode, welcome. So Neil deGrasse Tyson is a garbage person, but he will not go quietly into that dumpster. Oh, no. He actually had to respond. Where do we want to start with this, ladies? Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, we could start with the fact, I mean, he's basically denied pretty much every, like all of the accusations against He didn't just deny. He wrote a manifesto of yeah. denial. <laughs> Bitches be tripping. Bitches be crazy. Bitches be crazy. Like, yes. That, that was one of my favorite parts of that whole thing that he posted on Facebook on being accused, right? So it sounds very important. It sounds like an 18th century essay or something like that. Yes. He sounds like he's hanging out with Voltaire and talking about oppression. Uh, yeah. And, and one of the things that struck me was that when, when he talked about the woman who, has acu- who accused him of rape um, that he went to grad school with, like he took pains to talk about um, like her personal beliefs and the things that she has been interested in and, and stuff like that. And one of the things that I just found that I just found really, really weird. So like he was saying, uh, long after dropping out of astrophysics graduate school, she was posting videos of colored tuning forks endowed with vibrational therapeutic energy that she, cha- that she cha- challenged, that chan 
channels. There we go. From the orbiting planets. As a scientist, I found this odd. Right. So this has nothing to do with the accusations that are against him. This just has to do with him attempting to paint her as as a crazy person, as being someone who is not uh, all here, things like that. And and it's it's weird. Right. It's not saying like I didn't do anything. It's saying like, well, she's crazy, obviously. So you can't trust her. And this is very, very classic. Uh, when it comes to talking about women that have been assaulted or women that have accused men of rape, you go into their past, you'd be like, well, she was also sleeping with five other guys or, well, she has weird beliefs. So therefore she must not be trustworthy. My personal favorite part of the article and by personal favorite, I mean, moment where I'm just saying, what the fuck does this have to do with what we're actually talking about is when he describes the first incident in 2009 with the woman with the tattoo and I'm, I'm going to read part of it verbatim because I was just like, you can tell me where you're, where, where I would get that. He says, um, this is a woman at a, a fan ca- a conference, social gathering. She comes up with a sleeveless dress with a tattooed solar system extending up her arm. And while I don't explicitly remember searching for Pluto at the top of her shoulder, it is surely something I would have done in that situation. As we all know. I have professional history with the demotion of Pluto, which had occurred officially just three years earlier. So whether people included or not in their tattoos is of great <laughs> interest for me. Okay. It's horrible, but it's still funny. We're okay. talking about how you were accused of groping a woman and you're trying to talk about how you didn't, but if you did, it was totally in the name of science. Because, you know, Pluto's not really a planet anymore, and he's really upset by that. Well, and legit, all he had to do is be like, oh, that's a really cool tattoo. Did you include Pluto? And then let her show you if she feels like it. It's it's like reading a book where the whole plot is a murder mystery, but he has to tell you about how he is, like, the smartest person in the world. And that's not really relevant to the murdering part. But it just really shows you what type of guy he is. So I feel like that's what I'm reading. See, I'm lo- I'm looking at that overview on the e- at the end. I mean, and what has surprised me is the overt, for lack of a better word, the overt hostility in his response. I mean, looking at the top line of his conclusion, I'm the accused, so why believe anything I say? Why believe me at all? That is the prevailing tone that goes through his entire He's more interested in reminding audiences, because this is for an audience, I think, that he he serves wine and cheese than anything else. There is literally a paragraph where he says, I invited this woman to wine and cheese. I serve wine and cheese often to visitors. She decided to come over for wine and cheese. (laughs) Okay, we get, like, that's my thing. He's so wrapped up in the small stuff that is supposed to make you believe that he remembers and he would have remembered something untoward. And he's hoping you get caught up in the minutia as opposed to what actually occurred. Yeah, it's like he he's, he keeps on talking about things as though they, these weren't very important events, right? So obviously if something bad had happened, I would remember them because they would have been an important event. And yet he remembers stuff like that. And I think, Kim, I think that you mentioned this at one point on our Slack or something that I'm just like, this is, he's got a weird memory for very small details for things that he didn't at the time consider important. Because he's crafting, now he's crafting that narrative. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't want to look at the comments because I'm sure they're horrific. <laughs> 
But yeah, what I said last time still stands. Fuck you, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I also do have to say that with the tattoo thing, the tattoo thing made me not the most uncomfortable, but it maybe I, I guess hit the closest to home for me because as a woman with tattoos, uh, I have had men in bars, in clubs, in crowds, just with me just sitting there, not paying attention to them, not doing anything. I've had men trace my tattoos, touch my tattoos, run their hands over my, and, and my yeah. tattoos are all on my upper body. Right. So they like run their hands over me. And I'm just like, do you think that that is not a part of me? Do you think that this is just a thing that you can touch and fondle and look at, at, at without my permission, without sometimes without me even knowing you? Like I've had men in bars just like run their fingers along my tattoos. It's creepy. It's creepy. And a lot of men seem to think that this is OK, that there's nothing disturbing about it but it is a violation not a violation in, in the way of rape or anything like that but it's still a violation it's very bizarre it's still your body yeah exactly I'm, and it's like well, it's, it's, i mean would we just walk up to somebody and just run our you know would we walk up to a man and run our fingers through his hair no i mean it's the same thing well it's also it's funny that that lauren brings that up because i i say a lot of the same things about my wheelchair you know, that, that that is essentially an extension of myself. And you would be very surprised by how many people feel the need to say, like, I'm a footrest. I, I'm something that they like to, like, prop themselves on or touch or, like, grab. And I'm just always like, um, how about we don't? Because it's weird. And you're essentially trying to, like, use me as some type of device that I'm not really feeling. So... Just people in general, like men especially, but people in general. Stop being assholes using wheelchairs and tattoos for your own weird purposes. <sighs> Anywho, it's yeah. moving on to somebody who had a job for all of about, what, an hour? <laughs> Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart was going to be our Oscars host. He was going to be our Oscars host. It was a bright, shiny moment. That was quick. Where we all said, Ugh guess and then now we don't even have to worry about it anymore so kevin hart was announced as the academy host and after it was announced buzzfeed an author at buzzfeed looked at a bunch of tweets that kevin hart was at the time deleting that were anti-gay um and some of them are incredibly incredibly hurtful um so we're not even going to read them but and this is not new to Kevin Hart's background. Um, he's been known to, to, to be homophobic in his stand-up, and, and this is not something that was not unknown to people. Um, regardless, he was called out on it publicly, and the Academy gave him a verbatim, or a verbatim, excuse me, ultimatum. And they said, either apologize or you're not going to host. And he decided to double down and say that he wasn't going to apologize at all. His Instagram post, it's not even an apology statement, was, quote, Our world is becoming beyond crazy, and I'm not going to let the craziness frustrate me. If you don't believe people change, grow, evolve as they get older, then I don't know what to tell you. If you want to search my history or past and anger yourselves with what you find, that is fine with me. I'm almost 40 years old, and I'm in love with the man I am becoming. He claims that he backed out of the position because he didn't want it to become all about him and have celebrities have to answer questions about his comments. 
no, dude, you decided that you didn't feel that you needed to apologize. Like, own that shit. To borrow from our from Suicide Squad last night, own that. Like, just own it. it it's. I, I'm amazed that this that this has had the arc that it has because it happens so quickly. I mean, you had like one day he was he was always oh, going to host the Oscars. The next day, it was just like, hey guys, he said some really terrible shit. And then immediately it was just like, okay, now it's over. Um, I did find it interesting. I think that the president, uh, the president or one of the spokespeople from GLAAD actually said that this, that they didn't want Kevin Hart to step down. They wanted him to use the platform as a way of talking about homophobia and of actually being like, you know, this was, this was my behavior in the past. And, uh, you know, and now I'm choosing to be a, a better person or a different person. And of course, Hart just basically decides like, no, I'm not doing it. Never mind. I'm leaving. And in some ways that's even more damaging because it's essentially, it's essentially passing the buck. It's essentially being like, rather than really taking responsibility for the things that he has said in the past, he's simply like, all right, whatever, I'm out. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. I mean, he could have, there were a million ways he could have kept this gig, which according to him was something that he had wanted to do. So if you want to do it, I, I'm just call me crazy but if you wanted to do it why wouldn't you just do what is being asked of you y you know well and it seemed thinking of it from the cynical kind of the career-based perspective he's got a lot of movies coming out in the next couple of years this is probably the worst decision he could have made for that it would have been better for his persona his career his films to ad just address it come out you know work with glad do it and this his reaction to it makes him look it's probably it's the worst decision he could have made well, it's the worst decision but I, I think the way that we've seen especially comedians making fun of of gay people and and trans too as well that's a common shtick for the comedian world. I mean, going all the way back to, you know, I can remember Eddie Murphy and how, how his comedy has not aged well if you're looking at it through the lens of talking about homosexuality. This is a common refrain. And most of the time it pops up when something relevant happens and then it goes away. I don't think it's going to damage Kevin Hart's career. I think losing the Oscars will damage his career more than what he actually said, if that makes sense. And... Regardless, you know, he is not apologetic. That's his statement is not an apology. It is a statement. It is saying, you know, I did what I did. I feel I should have probably kept my job, whatever. I mean, it's very flippant. Yeah, well, that that's the thing. I mean, we have to, if you go back and watch old comedy specials, you go back and watch people like Richard Pryor or George Carlin or Eddie oh, Murphy, yeah. you know, any of those, you're going to find things that are just not acceptable in our current climate. And that doesn't mean that those are things that, you know, that, that we erase these comedians or that we, we erase their legacies or anything like that. But it mean, it does mean that we look at this stuff and we acknowledge it and, and we understand it and, at least for people like Kevin Hart, who, you know, this is not like something that was said back in the 1970s or the 1980s. This no. is something that's said fairly recently that he has been very comfortable with saying fairly recently. And literally all he had to do, and, and whether or not the Academy would have kept him is an open question, but all he had to do was come out and say, you know, 
I've been thinking about these things that I've said. I, I, I was trying to be funny. They're not funny. Um, I don't feel that I'm that person anymore, you know, to actually talk about it. And, and like, like the spokesperson for GLAD said, to actually use his platform as a way of bringing light to this stuff. Exactly. And there's no reason why he couldn't do that, unless he really does think that, you know, he didn't do anything wrong, in which case we have a much bigger problem. He could have been the host of the Oscars. Just saying. Um, I, I don't think he would have been that great, but I mean, it would have been a very safe show, but the Oscars, I think, are safe every year. So what I didn't like, too, is now the response to this on social media. You've seen that uptick of who should host, who should host, who should host. And I've seen some really interesting suggestions, but then I've, you know, I've seen people throwing out, you know, and it's like, suddenly it's just people falling over themselves over the same old, you know, same old boring white comedian. It's like, okay, now, now's your chance, the Academy's chance to get somebody really interesting in there. Like I heard somebody throw out like Viola and somebody throw out some very interesting But there are always interesting suggestions and they never go for it. They go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've seen people falling over themselves to talk about, you know, I mean, I I like the guy, but falling over themselves to get Patton Oswalt up there. And it's like, yeah, eh, okay, fine. I miss the days (laughs) of like not having a host. I'm all for the host is really unnecessary. I, I think as we talked about this when we talked about them t- trying to change the awards to always shorten the runtime. You know, nobody watches the short. You're the host. You know, the short in the beginning and the opening. I mean, nobody nobody watches it. Just give us the awards. I, I'm all for just having a brief little intro telling you you're watching the Oscars and that's it. Just go with it. You don't need a host. I liked the Hugh Jackman year. That was my story. Jackman was, was good. I think he was probably the closest we got to like the old timey Bob Hope type of old Hollywood way of doing things. Um, but yep, we'll we'll of course let you know when they actually find somebody else. But another award show that does not have a problem, right? Well, it has problems, but not with the host. I was about to say, it has It's the Golden Globes. They announced that Sandra Oh and uh, Andy Samberg are going to host. And I love how the Globes, they get so much wrong with the awards, but they take chances on the hosting. And it it actually is really awesome that that Sandra Oh and Andy Samberg are going to be a host to it. I actually like the Golden Globes ceremony better because everybody's drunk and it's actually a lot funner, but the awards tend to blow. Uh, the actual awards. Oh, yeah. So I and these, I love these it. choices I, blow. It is it is way more fun than the it Oscars. It is way more fun than the Oscars. Oh my gosh, it's way more fun. Uh, mostly because you just get to watch like people milling around tables trying to figure out what they're doing. The year Oscar Isaac was there, he had no clue what to do, and so the camera would just catch him doing really weird things. It was hilarious. Um, <laughs> but I, I drunk Meryl Streep, you know. Exactly, you get Meryl Streep like eating a candy bar or something. I mean, you don't get that on the Oscars, okay? Um, but they announced their awards. The Golden Globes announced their awards. We're not going to do all the of them, including the television. We're going to stick to film. You can go on Variety and, and find the full list of nominees but we're gonna throw out uh the big the heavy hitters so motion picture drama black panther black klansman bohemian rhapsody if beale street could talk and a star is born we're gonna go through them all and then we'll talk about them um motion picture musical or comedy crazy rich asians the favorite green book mary poppins returns and vice uh best actor in a drama bradley cooper willem dafoe for at eternity's gate lucas hedges 
Rami Malek and John David Washington for Black Klansmen. Actress in a drama, Glenn Close for The Wife, Lady Gaga, Nicole Kidman, Melissa McCarthy, and Rosamund Pike for A Private War. Actress in a musical or comedy is Emily Blunt, Olivia Coleman, Elsie Fisher, Charlize Theron for Tully and Constance Wu. Actor in a musical or comedy is Christian Bale for Vice, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Viggo Mortensen, Robert Redford, and John C. Riley for Stan and Ollie. Supporting actress Amy Adams for Vice, Claire Foy, Regina King, Emma Stone, and Rachel Weisz. Supporting actor Mahershala Ali, Timothy Chalamet, Adam Driver, Richard E. Grant, and Sam Rockwell. And director Bradley Cooper, Alfonso Cuaron, Peter Fairley for Green Book, Spike Lee, and Adam McKay for Vice. There's a bunch of other uh, nominees we can touch on a couple if anybody has specific favorites, but those big ones, how do we feel about them? Uh, It it put me in a bad mood to start the day, I will say that. (laughs) How so? Green Book. Green Book, fully and completely, to have that represented so much. I mean, director, script. I think the only one there that was even remotely deserved was Mahershal Ali. But many are saying he did not deserve to be supporting. Oh, he should have been lead. I mean, but I also, I don't know script-wise, his story was so downplayed that I don't think he he was probably supporting but it was the problems with that film. It's, I still truly, and I know we're going to come to this a bit later, but I don't, the love for that film, I just don't understand. And to see, and that kind of ties into my frustration with the best director category. I mean, and between best script, or, you know, best screenplay and best director, we have one woman in there. I yeah. mean, we were talking about this at last year's Golden Globes. <laughs> this is a, a, a fairly male-driven year once again. A fairly white year. There are there are exceptions. Black Panther, Black Klansman got, got nominations. Beale Street, exactly. And with the best actor lineup, we do have John David Washington in there, which is great. But still predominantly white male. Um, I, I was really happy to see Constance Wu I thought thought that was fantastic. The love for Black Klansmen, I'm really happy to see. Spike Lee getting that director nod is really, really heartening. And I was really happy. I know it's a, I know it's probably a pity nomination, but Robert Redford for best actor on his last role. I was, I was very happy to see that, but there were things I expected. Claire Foy popping up with all the way, the way the fanboys are falling over themselves for her. Uh, that was, I think, the only nomination, though, for First Man. It was. So, sorry, Chazelle fans. Um, but most of the time, I was watching this, watching these nominations come out thinking, oh, yeah, I forgot that movie came out. Like, Willem Dafoe, I have t- at Eternity's Gate. I'm looking right at it. I have not watched it. And it has Oscar Isaac. And I'm just like, eh, not really feeling that movie right now. Um, Do we want to talk about the Bohemian Rhapsody love too? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say I, the, the Vice love surprised me because I, that hasn't rolled Vice, out. Vice I haven't seen A lot yet, of people so I, I know that have say. seen it did not like it. But I also hated the big short. So. Has Vice even co- had a wide release yet? Has it come out yet? No. I, end of the month. End of the month. End of the month. 
I, I think I don't screen it for another two weeks yet. My screening, I don't think it's till the 20th, but I don't need to go because I have a screen. So they, they are, pro- I would not be, they probably screen for the Hollywood Foreign Press probably and oh, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, because every, everything that I've actually seen in terms of people reacting to it is is basically like, guys, guys, Vice is not good. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But they love McKay, so. I was about to say McKay. And I mean, I'm really, I was big into the political scene it at that time. So I'm really curious to see it. And then that bail performance intrigues the hell out of me. I mean, we, we talk about, and we're going to come around to Bohemian Rhapsody, but these, the Hollywood Foreign Press, it's only like, what, 100 people? Nine, 93, I thought I heard someone say, yeah. It's 93 people that are highly influenced. Like, that's the thing. Every year you hear of some controversy about how the Hollywood Foreign Press was essentially influenced into giving a nomination. If you recall, when Burlesque came out, they all got in trouble because Cher invited them to go see her show. And what do you know? She got a nomination that year. So some some things did not surprise me. Again, the Robert Redford, they love him. They love him. Uh, John C. Riley, which Stan and Ollie, they love nominating stuff about Hollywood. Um, that wasn't surprising. The Bohemian Rhapsody stuff for me was not surprising as well because that movie's doing as much full court press as they can because as long as they can get a picture and an actor, they can pat themselves on the back. I, I don't, I know they're campaigning singer, but I think even at this point, no no voting body is going to go that far and have that that on their conscience but it's not surprising to me that bohemian rhapsody got in it's a populist film and and a lot of the praise for bohemian rhapsody even from a critical perspective has largely been focused on malik um yeah because you know and i it's it seems like that if any if anything out of all of that is going to really get a proper nomination it's going to be him which might be deserved i don't know um yeah, I, I was very glad to see the love for Black Klansmen just because I, I almost felt like people were beginning to forget about it. And it was nice to see that come back around. And the story that John David Washington told about like finding out that he had been nominated and everything was very sweet. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, this, it's the, the Globes are weird. The Globes always have this weird mishmash of stuff, some of which you're like, oh yeah, that's going to go on to get to get Oscar nods. And then others where you're just like, what? What are you talking about? Like, what? I don't even remember that that film existed. Uh, it's, yeah. it's always very strange. But the lack of female directors, again, is just not not on like come on guys we we have to start doing better i'm glad to see that it is not exclusively white men but jesus christ like we we can't keep on playing this game we can't keep on being like well you know i've seen a number of film critics on twitter talking about how well women haven't really directed any interesting films this year just like dude where have you been like are you just not paying attention or do you not do you not realize that some of these films that you've given praise to were in fact directed by women? Like what, what is going on here? And I mean, I, I, I want to see Mariel Heller. Mariel Heller should have been in there. Yeah. And, and there's no reason why she, she shouldn't be like, if you look at that film there, uh, Lynn Ramsey, um, I mean, people have listed, you know, you could fill the entire, all of the director's slots with women and they would be 100% deserved, and many of them would be more deserved than people like, you know, Adam McKay. <laughs> Bradley Cooper. <laughs> um, to, <clears throat> and, and Peter Fairley. Let us, 
Let us never forget Peter Farrelly is an os- is a Golden Globe nominated director now. The guy who Peter Dumb and Dumber Farrelly. Yes, he is a Golden Globe nominee. That's that's Golden Globe nominee Dumb and Dumber director. Peter Bradley Farrelly. Cooper, uh, Peter Farrelly. I to me those are having not seen Vice yet, so I'm not going to pass judgment on McKay. Those two have. There's no reason somebody like Marielle Heller should be shut out of there and having those two in there. I'm s- I just realized you could get rid of all three of the of the basic white dudes and exactly. like not have lost anything because none of them deserve the nomination. What I find it funny that they included Quaron for Roma, yet Roma got foreign language. It was not nominated in picture. That's the other thing. I think Roma should have been in there with drama. I, I think that should have been in there yeah. for best motion picture. That technical achievement was too damn good. It it, it makes Quaron's nomination look like a sympathy to try to balance the the Maybe race since since they didn't nominate him for best picture. Right, best and I feel picture. like it's it's funny to me that people like fairly people like men like McKay can do can transition from comedy to drama and then get rewarded with these nominations but you never see that with female directors at all because they're lucky to get directing gigs exactly exactly like i just i find that to be really funny you know um i i did think it was funny people were also talking about we always talk every year about how drama and musical and comedy have apparently very fluid definitions per the hollywood foreign press and bohemian rhapsody and a star is born are not musicals are they not? I mean, obviously. I, I would well. I would argue Bohemian Rhapsody should be in the comedy character. That was such a bad movie. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> and and like Vice is not a drama. The well, Green, Green Book is well, they, not. They run where they think drama. they can get the nomination most easily. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You get that category fraud every year. And so, and so much of it is is obviously run ups to the Oscars, and it's where they think they can get nominated. It's also where they think they can win. I obviously like some of these things don't think that they can compete in particular categories, and then they turn around and are like, okay, well, we can com- compete in this. Um, the whole Star Is Born thing, I'm just like, that is a musical, guys. I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> but it's not a comedy. That's one of the other issues is that the Golden Globes lumping in musical and comedy so when you do have those those films that don't fit into the comedy category but do fit into the musical category and then they wind up competing against comedies it gets really weird we have our yeah golden globe nominee for comedy the martian i mean that's always gonna be that's always gonna be the the example so (sighs) golden globies why why do you do this to me i mean at least we should just be happy that they don't have ms golden globes anymore I mean, they've they've gotten rid of that. Now it's a guy. Like, it can be a guy. Progress. <laughs> Progress, everybody. Yeah. Uh, the Golden Globes happen January 6th. Uh, you can, again, check out the rest of the nominees, including the television stuff at Variety. Uh, it should be. Should be interesting. Should be. Yawn. Uh, I think it'll be entertaining. Yes, it will definitely be entertaining. Um, Whether or not it good is another question but it will be entertaining um moving on to one of our questions we got a question this week from brandon kane at zero wolf he says as critics how do you cope with other critics ignoring or just not seeing problematic issues in films such as a star is born and green book especially given the general subjectivity of film criticism brandon i'm glad you've asked that question (laughs) 
Because we seem to have that problem daily. Daily? Is that, that that's kind of a daily problem? Yeah. Yeah. It, anymore. Yeah. Definitely. This this year in particular. Uh, uh, Kim, I did not see Green Book, so I will let you answer this first with your Green Book experiences. I I honestly I am stumped on how to answer this because I'm I'm not dealing well with it this year. I mean, in previous years, I could easily say, oh, it's subjective. It's subjective. But Green Book in particular is bothering me, the reaction. And I can honestly say, how do you deal with it? You know, Brandon asks, how do you deal with it? I'm not dealing well with it right now. <laughs> well, I, I will say, I remember last year when Three Billboards came out. And I and a lot of other critics of color and, and women critics were just shocked looking around at this landscape of how people were praising this movie. And we were just sitting there like, it's racist. It's, it's such a racist movie. It's reminding you that the lovable racist is a nice person that has a, has, you know, a, a benefit. And that's green. Everybody. Right. Right. And so I feel like when there's a distinct difference when you're talking about racism on screen versus when you're talking about sexism on screen. So we'll get to A Star is Born in a second. But when it comes to last year, when we were talking about Three Billboards, I mean, I got into fights, like verbal fights with with critics on on Twitter um, about how I was just like, you're and, and again, here's my problem. When, when we're in the critical community, we do come at it with, you bring your baggage with you. There's subjectivity, but as we all know, film is colored by our, everybody's personal experience. So for me, watching a movie about a disabled character, I cannot disassociate from that and look at it as an able-bodied person would see it. I look at it as an, I think an able-bodied person would see it because they don't know a disabled person. Like that's, that's how you mitigate. So you can never really, you know, for me, it's very hard for me to enjoy a movie about a disabled person in the same way that an able-bodied person would. It, it's near impossible because I live with that experience. So when something like Three Billboards came out last year and I was having these arguments with people, I was noticing that I was having the arguments with the same demographic, which was a white male. And so I was sitting there saying, you don't see it because you have your own baggage with that movie. You know, you're you're not seeing it through the lens of a person of color. You're not seeing it through the lens of a woman. And there is a difference there. You're not seeing it through the lens of a woman of color. You know, because I think white women also really embrace three billboards. And and they were like, oh, well, you know, I understand. I understand. But I still love it. You know, does that make me a terrible person? No, it doesn't make you a terrible person. But I do want you, again, it's about ownership. I want you to own that this movie is problematic to people who are not white men. And, and that's, I think, the problem that a lot of critics, the old guard especially, which, again, is still predominantly white men have a real problem seeing they don't want to look back and and i have movies we you know we we've, we've talked about problematic faves you know not not every movie is created flawlessly but i will be the first person to tell you i love the little mermaid it is problematic as hell in every way shape and form but coming at it from the time that i did i can't say that i don't love it but i understand that it's got flaws 
Just because something sense. is problematic doesn't mean you have, it's not wrong to like problematic films. We just need exactly. to acknowledge, I mean, coming as at it from, as a film historian, it's not wrong to like problematic films. We just need to see where the problems stem from and we need to understand it. Yeah. And that, and that, I'm sorry, that is our job as critics. That is a person's job as, as you, you're supposed to look at these films from a critical, through a critical lens, which means that you have to, you have to be sensitive at some level to all of the issues that could, that could possibly be raised about something. So issues of sexism or misogyny, issues of racism issues. And, and one of the problems I think that a lot of critics have is that they, there's still this inability to look at certain things when it is more subtle than simply like someone saying the N word or someone, you know, mistreating a a female character and not being condemned for it and stuff like that. Um, I, I, I feel like that there are a lot of critics that are, that unless it is really, really overt, they won't see it. They won't pay attention to it. They won't consider it as a part of their critique. And that, to me, that to a degree, that's laziness. I think, and I, I think that it's partially also to do with um, the the current critical culture, which is that we have to get the review out as quickly as possible. I would agree um, there definitely because it does because in some ways we're competing with all of the other critics who have already seen the film and have already written their perspectives. So, in the initial critical analysis, like if you had asked me probably the first time that I saw Three Billboards, and I I have very mixed feelings about that film. If you had asked me, like, okay, write a review of it, uh, I would have I would have a different kind of review than the review that I would have written two or three weeks later when I had had time to talk to other people about it and to really think about what was represented in the film and to even see the film again. Same here. So, so there there is there is a, an issue with the current state of film criticism, but I think there is also an issue with laziness among critics and critics inability or unwillingness and maybe it's it's part part of it might be that a a number of critics are not particularly well trained in the study of film um in really looking at the material of a film and considering it from some perspective other than their own so as a white woman i'm i'm always going to be bringing in my particular biases my particular interests you know i like to think that i can look at a film and be like okay i'm going to try to understand this and try to look for issues of misogyny try to look for issues of racism try to look for problematic things that are embedded within the text um i might not always get there but part of my job is to be critical of that film that's what i'm supposed to be doing otherwise why am i even writing a critique it's at that point it's just like i liked this film i didn't like it um, I also do agree with you, Kim, obviously, that we, we have to, uh, we have to accept the fact that we're going to like problematic things and that does not make us bad people, but that does also, that does not also mean that we are allowed to ignore the fact that they are problematic. Like anyone who is a fan of classical cinema like something that is problematic because the nature of the films were to be problematic. Um, and sometimes it's very overt, as in uh, the the sheer amount of racism that you find in 1930s and 40s film. And sometimes it is much more uh, subtextual and you've got to be able to deal with both and you've got to be able to talk about both and be like, this is a problem. I recognize it as a problem. And here are also the other things that I think are very beneficial and useful to look at in this film. It's what makes us well-rounded. Yeah. Well, I also think with sexism too, 
that's where you get a lot. That's where I get at least a lot of pushback from critics because it often feels like they feel, and again, this is predominantly white male critics, but they, they often feel that it's me, me nagging me, you know, talking it, it almost like they go back to this 1970s concept of feminism where they're like, Oh, because they're not burning their bra. They're not progressive. Uh, as we've seen many times with my hatred of Taylor Sheridan, which, by the way, I'm still, I stopped reading the comments on it. I still get angry, horrified, pissed off comments from people about the article I wrote talking about how Taylor Sheridan should never write women characters again. People still ver- feel very strongly that I am incorrect, um, and I'm not. But but when you are talking about <laughs> sexism, I think, more than anything, um as Lauren mentioned, you're really looking at not something overt. So it's not watching a woman get beaten in the face for, you know, 20 minutes or or watching them be only seen as, you know, bitches and hoes. It's the concept of taking a female character nowadays and adding her into a male-driven movie and then letting her get her ass beat for an hour and then saying, well, she's in the movie, so it's progressive. You know, you're looking at something far more subtle and far more nuanced than than in the past. And that makes the change of how we talk about sexism or racism, you know, it keeps you on your toes. Like, you have to be noticing these things. And as Lauren was mentioning, it's not just that people, I, I think the new crop of critics that I talk about that are coming up, you know, they're raised on just movies. They're not raised on reading about film history, reading film text from, you know, uh, philosoph- you know, not philosophers, but, you know, like, like Carol Clover writing about feminism in film. You know, they're not looking at the philosophies behind why movies are the way they are. And I think one of the things that a lot of critics and I argue with is that I argue intent and, and not directorial intent, but more like marketing intent you know, when, when I talk about disability in cinema, I'm talking about how that movie is marketed to a specific audience, which is not a disabled audience, it's marketed to an able-bodied audience, and, and how all of the problems that are associated come from this need to market it to an able-bodied audience. And I feel like a lot of movies that are marketed to women are still marketed in these outdated, male-driven ways. And so for me, it becomes more not just looking at the film, but looking at the business of film. And I think that a lot of critics, especially ones that grew up around the old guard of critics, when like film criticism actually made you money and gave you prestige, um, you know, they're looking at it, well, it's just the movie. The movie is the only thing that matters. Not anymore, because we're smarter. We're smarter consumers and we understand, we should understand how we're being sold uh, a bill of goods. It's like watching old movies from the 40s during the war. I mean, in the, at the time, you might not have seen it as propaganda, but it was, you know? So I, I feel like a lot of people, a lot of critics don't really want to think beyond what the frame is showing them because then they'd have to go into that existential rabbit hole of like how they played into it. Well, and, and I think what you seem to be talking about is basically audience reception. The way... Yeah, right. and an understanding, which is sometimes hard to analyze because you, particularly for older films, um, but yeah, but you're you're looking at what is actually being sold, what is being what is being shown to the audience, and who's who's this movie being made for, 
right? Is this movie being directed? And in fact, you know, we talked about Black Klansman. Black Klansman was one of those that a lot of uh, uh, critics of color began talking about as being like, well, this feels like it's a movie that is made for, that Spike Lee made for white people. And there was a lot of dialogue going on about that. And so you get those kinds of things where you have to talk about, okay, who is the audience, the intended audience for this film? Um, one of the things that I wanted to go back to is, is uh, uh, the issue of, of rape, of depicting rape on film. And one of the arguments that particularly white male critics go back to a lot is, well, the rape was committed by the bad guy. Um, and I remember back when uh, Game of Thrones did the, the rape of Sansa Stark and, and really depicted this in, in a very explicit and very violent way, right? The argument was continuously, like all of the objections to it were basically tossed out and, and the argument was continuously from a lot of white male critics um, well, but it's the bad guy. It's showing that the villain is the one that is committing this. And that does show a great deal of lack of understanding of the way that scenes are photographed, the way that the mise-en-scene operates, the way that characterization operates, uh, because it's a question of, are those rape scenes being intended, like you're saying, uh, in terms of the interpretation of the audience, are they also being intended to titillate the audience, to appeal to the uh, white male psyche to appeal to this sort of enjoyment of watching a female character being violated and then also getting to, to have your enjoyment removed at some level and being like, well, uh, it's okay for me because it's, it's hap the villain is the one that is committing the rape. And of course I would never be the villain. Um, so you get to both have a good time watching this woman being violated and you get to sort of distance yourself from it and, and be like, well, but it's the bad guy that's doing it. And so there've been a lot of dialogue about that. And that's why, you know, people are encouraged to read film criticism and film theory. That's why it's important to read things like Carol Clover and to read Barbara Creed and, uh, and even Laura Mulvey, you know, who's, who's, uh, criticism and analysis is kind of fallen by the wayside, but she still has some very good points. And it's really important to look at that and to understand what that means. Well, Brendan, you gave our question, uh, us a very interesting question. So hopefully we've answered it. Did, I think we also, answered it. Also, Star is Born is incredibly sexist. Like, let's just it talk is. about it's it. Incredible. There's no way to say it isn't. <laughs> I, I would love to do an episode, a bonus episode, where we do actually just talk about A Star is Born. Um, but then I realized that I'd have to remember how mad it makes me. and I'd have to watch it again, and yeah. I don't want to watch it again. <laughs> you just My brother liked it, so, you know, there's that. I was seething when I came out of that movie. <laughs> I, I don't, uh, moving can I, on. Can I say one more thing? I do. I do. Yes, I always have to say one more thing, goddammit. Um, I do want critics to stop behaving like simply audience members, because they're not. Audience members are generally there to be entertained at some level, right? Critics are supposed to criticize. You're supposed to critique. You're supposed to know more and have a deeper experience of film than the regular person who is just there to spend a Saturday afternoon. And you have to be able to criticize like this. You can't just say like, well, I liked it. It's just like, okay, fine. You liked it, but you have to give an analysis of it. You have to show that you understand what the fuck you're talking about. Otherwise, why do I care? Why am I reading you? Why am I paying attention to anything that you have to say? Like, cause obviously I could just talk to the guys in the seat next to me and he would have the same fucking insight. 
that's it. All right. But to have... But to have a deeper understanding, you have to have a knowledge of film history. Yeah. You have to have a knowledge of the business. You have to have a knowledge of things beyond what you're seeing on the screen. And we've seen it's the reactions job, that these men have, predominantly men, that these people have when they are faced or they're questioned by that topic is hostility. You'd almost think it was like a job that required like knowledge and research. Like know- knowing knowing the industry, knowing the All business? What? scandalous i did not know this (laughs) so we did forget one bit of news and i want to go back to it because it is important and by important i mean like we need to rail on it so filmstruck is gone we're still not really over it yet and to remind us of how we shouldn't actually miss it is the writer Catherine grew who wrote an article for the Washington Post about how Filmstruck wasn't that good for movies, don't mourn its demise. So I have only heard what other people have been saying about this. I have not actually read the article. So who wants to sum it up for me? Because I'm lazy. See, I've read it twice and I'm a little... See, the point of hers I was picking up on and some of, I, I didn't like the railing on Filmstruck but I saw a bigger point, and Lauren, please correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm reading this in a different way that you are, I saw the point in her article of being more about film preservation as a whole. Everyone went into this panic mode about film struck dying, and it's like, oh God, we'll we'll have no more films, you know, but. We've been seeing such a demise in film as a medium, just in terms of how many silent films do we not have anymore? You know, how, what percentage of nitrate films have we lost because they've burnt up? You know, that's, this is a bigger question. I read it as this is a bigger question than simply Filmstruck going down. I mean, and I was sad about Filmstruck going down, but I've also been, I've looked at, live television from the 50s the thought of how many films pre-1930 we don't have anymore is incredibly sad and we're losing these avenues and people need to take a bigger understanding in its preservation and just trying to keep what we have i yeah i i agree with that and i think that the points that she makes about film archiving and uh film Film preservation and the need for people to care about all types of film is is a very good one, and I think that that's important. One of the other issues that I have is that I, I believe that she her focus is on what are usually referred to as orphan films. Um, so, and these are films that are like you know training films from the army and home videos and uh, re- you know kind of just random footage of which there is an abundance but which generally does not get preserved is generally you know you're not going to find most of them on the Library of Congress list you're not going to find most of them on Filmstruck and one of the problems that I have with her argument is that and the, I, I called on Twitter I kept on calling it essentialist that the way that she was writing she made it sound as though we have a choice between either valuing what Filmstruck was presenting, which was primarily narrative cinema, which was, quote, important cinema um, in terms of art house features and, and classical features and foreign features, or valuing home videos, valuing kind of the, the history of film as this medium that has a much more expansive view, which is uh, not just narrative, not that is also film as art. 
And the problem is that we can, you know, there's, Filmstruck wasn't taking anything away from archives. Filmstruck wasn't taking anything away from research into that. Actually, it was opening up more avenues for people to get to experience different types of films. Exactly. Hmm? Yeah, I'm not really understanding her issue. It, it turns into this and or. We can't have one without ignoring the other. Yeah. So she's saying, like, don't save these films because they're from white men and they're they're the, the masterworks of history. People are already saving those. Save these films that are more aimed at research and that people are not going to sit down and watch on a Saturday. She brings up the fact that the Library of Congress is doing their national screening room, you know, that, that all these different places, the internet archive. Yeah. And what people valued about Filmstruck is the, there is so much content out online. So much. I will watch Netflix and scour it for an hour and be so overwhelmed by how many things there are that I won't watch anything. And what people I think valued about Filmstruck was the curation that we keep talking about. The fact that they had certain things in easily digestible little groupings nobody's going to search through the internet archive you know unless you know exactly what you want to watch um you know there's not a way to go to the internet archive uh, at least that i know of and be able to type in an actor and be able to pull up everything that they they have it, that what based on what they have and most of what's on the internet archive is again public domain um there's no real real archival preservation and that should be fixed there should be more money put into archiving and cleaning up these these films. But to say that we don't need Filmstruck and how dare you miss it because all these home movies that are 15 minutes that are, you know, these training films are going to get lost. No one's saying that's not important. We're just saying that, you know, we, we those aren't something that the masses are going to watch. You know, yes, save them, preserve them for the people that do want to see them. But you're acting like that's providing an entertainment value to somebody. And it's not. It's a different experience. Well, Filmstruck ultimately is a stepping stone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. who's to say how many, how many kids who might have had a, you know, people who saw Filmstruck through a subscription or something like that. That's an entry into film. That's an entry into film studies. That's an entry into classic cinema. What she is saying, the the research, the preservation of the home. I took classes on home movies in film school. I looked at training videos from the 1950s. That is stuff you focus on as an academic. And that's a whole new level of research. And it certainly needs to be preserved because we need to look at our history and we need to focus on our history because how are we going to learn if we don't do it? However, Filmstruck serves as an entry point for the masses. I'm, I fell in love with film. Re there's really two instances. It was the first time I saw Casablanca and the first time I saw Singing in the Rain. And Filmstruck gave that opportunity. And I dove into the academic realm as a result because of the love that I founded from those first two film going experiences. Well, and I, I think, I think that an awful lot of film critics and of film of academics, of film scholars would say pretty much the same thing that, you know, very, I really cannot imagine that, that, that Catherine Grew got into this because she fell in love with a home movie. 
a particular home movie from the 1950s. I just don't, I just don't necessarily believe that. And, and even if she did, you know, I don't think that that is, that that is probably true for most film scholars. You get into film initially because there's something that appeals to you in something that you have seen. And usually those things are narrative cinema. Usually those things are commercial cinema. The uh, One of the other issues that um, kind of, sprung up around all of this was this issue of capitalism and how oh, all of these films should be in the public domain. And that opened up, that opens up a whole other thing because then you begin to go like, well, wait a minute, you know, film archives are not, they're public services, but the people who work in film archives, the people who work to preserve films are paid for their services. That's you, they have to be because other, because simply for the cost of preservation, simply for the cost of restoring some of these nitrate prints or saving them and preserving them. Um, you know, the idea that this, that like the, all of these public domain films just should be uh, absolutely available to everybody. I absolutely agree with that. One of the things that I loved about Filmstruck was getting to watch early Hitchcock films that were not public domain prints. And the reason for that is the vast, vast majority of the public domain prints that are available are terrible because they haven't been properly restored. The audios yep. suck, the pictures suck. And so like, I can sit there and watch it and like, I can't hear what is happening. I can't discern like who that person is in the corridor or things like that. And then suddenly I was getting to watch these, these films preserved, properly preserved, properly restored so that I could look at them and go like, this is awesome. That's what things like Criterion do. That's what things like Kino do. That's what, and, and at a certain point, somebody got to be paid for that. Um, so the, the idea that Filmstruck was, Filmstruck is not the only answer. And I do agree that it's not the death of cinema for Filmstruck to leave, but it's also not the answer to that is also not to be like, well, everybody should be watching 15 minute home movies. It's like, no, no, people aren't going to do that. Right. That is not something they're going to do. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that those films aren't important. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be preserved, but you can't force feed people films that they don't want to see. Yeah. And, and the, the other thing too, that I think the article gets, gets really wrong is just, and well, I don't want to say it gets wrong. She is bringing up points that we've already touched on, you know, the privilege of owning physical media, the privilege of being able to use Filmstruck, you know, th that you can actually pay for Filmstruck. But it's almost like she's saying capitalism bad because you're paying for this service, therefore you're not actually a film lover. Like, that's how, how I took it. Like, it's just a bunch of wealthy fat cats who paid $9.99 a month and they're bemoaning the loss of this service. Well, and ultimately, our country doesn't subsidize the arts like they do in other countries. I yeah. mean, you, thinking of, you know, what they do in the United Kingdom, what they do, and I've, heck, I've seen things up in Canada. We don't do that through the government. So this stuff is privatized. And you've, you know, yes, I was able to take out a subscription. I probably shouldn't have because I probably didn't have the money, but I wanted to. I took out the subscription. And there are... It was a privilege, but I ultimately I had my first intro to classic cinema through PBS. So there are ways around it. Exactly. I'm very confused by this article. So you can find it on the Washington Post. Give it a read. Let us know what you think. Moving on to some trailer talk. This was Marvel's week, pretty much. Got two Marvel trailers, uh, starting with 
Captain Marvel! We actually got the full trailer for Captain Marvel that tells us more about the life of Carol Danvers, played by Brie Larson, and how she became awesome. Um, I do, I do think that the, the teaser trailer I liked better because I feel like there's a lot of story they tried to pack into two minutes, and I was just kind of like, let me just see more of her being awesome. You don't need to tell me the plot. I actually don't care. I just want to see her kick ass. See, I kind of felt the opposite. I liked, but I mean, my main frustration with the first trailer was that it was all Nick Fury, you know, telling us why we should like her, you know, telling the fanboys why this chick should be here. And I thought this was a great extension on that. We get to hear, we get to hear more about her. We get to hear more from her. Uh, We get to see, you know, Annette Bening in there. So I thought it was a nice extension just to give us more fleshing out a little bit more. Um, I, I mean, in my complete, you know, frivolous, I think I tweeted about it, Ben Mendelsohn in a suit playing the same role. He all, it looks like he's playing the same thing he always plays, but I don't care. I'll give my money. Um, I think you get to see Lee Pace in there for a quick second, which once again, excited me because I love him. And I, I really liked this one better than I did the first one. Cause I was, I was holding back I wanted to see more after seeing the first trailer and this helped me a lot get more excited for this. Lauren, what do you think of it? Uh yeah, it it looks it looks interesting, it looks fun, it looks, you know, more more sort of Marvel stuff which could be really good. I'm I mean, you know, I'm glad to see I'm glad to see a woman like actually leading a film. That's nice. It and obviously it's all going to going to tie into whatever happens in Avengers 4. So it's, it looks fine. Uh, I am fine with it. I have no problem with this film existing. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think the trailer, most of us don't really need to see the trailer at this point. We just want to see the movie. So honestly, I was fine with them just, just keeping the teaser trailer. I don't think we necessarily needed more, but Either way, Cat Marvel comes out March 8th, International Women's Day. So that'll be exciting to see. And of course, the biggie came out this week. We finally got Avengers Infinity War Part 2. I don't care what you call it. It's Avengers Infinity War Part 2. Uh, it's actually Avengers <laughs> Endgame. I like Infinity War Part 2 better. But this is the continuation of what happened in uh, Avengers Infinity War. I'm assuming something's gonna happen okay they're all gonna come back like we all know this right this is not a spoiler they all have sequels they all have sequels i mean they're all gonna come back this is i would love for this to be the leftovers where they all just depart and then we all cry about it for you know four years but they're all gonna come back i mean i just i don't know i watched this trailer and i was sitting there thinking i feel no tears because i know they're coming back my friend was very upset when we saw Infinity War earlier this year because I just, when that all went down, I just looked at her and was like, yep, they're all coming back. Like, I felt nothing. She's like crying. I'm like, I don't know why. They're all coming back. Um, this trailer was fine. I am not a Marvel person, as I've declared numerous times. I go see them because it's my job and they are the empire at this point of movies. So I'm going to go. It definitely looks like it's going to be intense. Hemsworth's there. That's nice. Um, yeah, that's all. That's literally all I have. I, I must have no emotion for this. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of. I feel like we really need to find a Marvel person to round this out. Like, I feel like (laughs) I am right here, you know. Oh, okay. So Kim, yeah, it's different. Kim is a Marvel person. Come on. Did you feel feelings? I. This is. (laughs) I am kind of where I'm coming from at this. Yes, they are. That ending for me was a little hollow, just because everybody who we know, we know they've got sequels. So that is, it It hurts the emotional impact of that, at least a little bit for me. Where my emotion is coming from in this is the fact that we're losing the originals. I, mean, I don't believe Robert Downey Jr. signed on for anything else. We know Chris Evans is out. And Chris Hemsworth is picking up a lot of work that's not Marvel related. Um, Black Widow, we've got what, maybe that movie coming out. But we're going to be losing some characters who have been there for a long time. And the rumor, I am have long ago made peace with the fact that Captain America is probably going to die at the end of this one. And that he's been the heart of the Marvel Universe for me. And that shot in the trailer, you see just a split second of him crying. And just that is a big emotional core for me so that is going to hurt so that was where I was going oh no and I'm not I'm not ready to lose all of those people and because I'm assuming that is going to happen at least at some level so I'm going to be a mess when that movie comes out I will be there and I thought that was a very good trailer to start and I'm going to be dreading probably this movie until it comes out Kim how sad were you to lose Chris Evans beard Oh, oh, so sad. It's, and that was another, never mind the fact that we're, we're going to lose Captain America here. The fact that Bearded Cap is gone. He needs to go emo and grow the beard back because Bearded Cap was one of the best things ever. I don't get it. I just. Oh, it's yeah, I mean, just. If Bearded Cap had ripped that log apart like he did in what was that? Uh, was that Winter Soldier? <laughs> it's that. One of my. Yeah, was a. Age of Ultron, Ultron thank you. Yes, where it's ooh, ooh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I, I, I love I, I to fawn there for a second. <laughs> I did not understand. Missed the hand gestures too. They were actually very Stefan there. <laughs> <laughs> so Avengers Endgame comes out April twenty sixth. Then I wish I I wish I felt more. Uh, I wish I had feelings. So. Moving well, on. We know you don't know Joy, so. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, true. Uh, moving on to reviews. Not a whole lot came out this week as we get into the uh, end of the year and holidays. So we're doing a what we've been watching. Um, and where do we want to start? Because I know what I want to talk about, and I know Lauren saw it. Karen's <laughs> not here, and I don't think yeah. Kim saw it. Which, well, go. you guys go ahead and start okay. then. What did we're you- going to talk about Creed 2. So, oh, yeah, because I didn't it, so go right ahead. I saw Creed 2 for the second time the other day with my mom, and I enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed it a lot the first time, but I enjoyed it even more the second time. So I've seen, I don't like Marvel movies, but yet I've seen all the Rocky movies, and yet I feel like I feel about Marvel with the Rocky movies. So, like, I've seen all of them, and I think the, okay, so my order of Rocky movies and Lauren, you can jump in if you've seen any of the other ones. I, I consider like of the original trilogy, two is probably my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. know. And then it's like 
the Drago E one and then like one and then the other ones. Um I, I think the worst I think the worst one for me is the Mr. T one. I think that's three. Um yeah, 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 yeah. I don't I don't know Rock the Rocky That's fine. Um but then but then Creed came out and I saw it and I loved it. I loved everything about Creed. Um, we all know why you liked it. It wasn't just Michael B. It was the way Ryan Coogler directed. I liked the script. Yeah. I love what they did with Stallone's character. Like, I thought it was great. And and so when 2 came out, it was just like, oh, God, it's not Coogler. And that's really my big my big criticism with Creed 2, is that if you've seen the first Creed, you're going to feel very immediately that it's not Ryan Coogler's Creed. I call Creed 2 not a Creed movie, but a Rocky movie. And that can be, it's its probably the best Rocky movie uh, because it takes from Rocky Four and it builds on it. Um, and I really enjoyed this. It, it does feel a little overlong at times. Uh, I was noticing the length a little bit more the second time around. But, oh my God, I loved everything about it. And Michael B is great. Tessa Thompson's awesome. Stallone is there making dad jokes, white dad jokes, which is, you know, that's cool. Um, but it's all about the fucking Dragos, because they're awesome. And I know, I know that Dolph Lundgren killed Apollo Creed. Like, I get that, okay? And he's an asshole, and he probably should have been arrested. I'm not really sure how that worked out. Um, but he gets such a good part in this movie. He, he actually kind of steals the film with a, with a one moment at the end, and I was just like, oh, it's so good. And Brigitte Nielsen's there, and I was just like, oh my god. This is great. Give me a movie. I told I told you guys this already on the Slack. Give me a movie where it's just the Dragos in some like dark, ominous Russian melodrama where they it's just like, like a sitcom waiting just to give happen. each other side eye and like talk shit to each other with like dripping candelabras and everything. Oh my god, it would be amazing. <laughs> I would watch the hell out of that. Um, I mean, I just I had a lot of fun, and then my mom and I have spent the last week making really inappropriate Draco sex jokes. And it's been actually really funny. But um, yeah, yeah, I had a lot of fun with this movie. I enjoyed it so much. Uh, Lauren, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I really, I love the, the first Creed because it, it's just a good film. It's just really well made and well acted and it's very tense and intense and it builds really well and everything. This Creed 2 feels like more of the same. Um, and it's not as, it's not as good because it's not Ryan Coogler and it does kind of feel like it's hitting some of the same emotional beats and it's sort of recycling the whole thing. Like, you know, we're still dealing with daddy issues. We're still dealing with the past catching up to the present and all of that stuff. And so in that sense, I was kind of like, okay, well, we've kind of gone through this again and I was okay to go along with it for this one because of the Dragos. And, and because of the advances that some of the other characters make. But I, I am a little worried. I'm like, are you going to keep on make basically remaking Rocky movies? Like, how, how far along are we going to go with this? Um, I do think that, that one of the biggest strengths is, is the Dragos, because it's a very different representation of relationship between father and son and of the problems of the past and the problems that are catching up to them and uh, i i absolutely agree with you there's that moment at the end of the film and i was terrified like i was not certain what exactly was going to happen um at the end of all of that but there is there's that one moment with uh with ivan where he finally you know like 
he says something and it's wonderful and it's actually like okay things things might change you know we might actually be able to advance out of the cyclical nature of the past just repeating itself and reliving it um continuously but it was it was a very it's a very well done film michael b jordan is great of course he is uh tessa thompson is great i really liked the fact that there was a sense that the women were not there to fix the men uh or to protect them or to you know make them feel better in fact there's one point where um uh donnie's mother basically says says to his wife his wife at that point uh you know he's a grown man and you just have to be there for him. And it's like, yeah, he is a grown man. He's got to work this shit out for himself. This is not something that you can fix for him. You just, like, you have to live your own life and you have to love him, but you can't fix what is happening to him. Uh, and I liked that. I liked the fact that the film didn't go that sort of route of, like, you know, you must become a better man for because I, I have to take care of you and I have to be certain that you become a better man. Um so yeah, it was a good film. I totally enjoyed it. I did think it was overlong. Uh, I'm not like, you know, madly in love with it in the way that I was in love with Creed, but it's it's definitely a good continuation of the Drawn story. Moves. That's all I got. I'm not 100% sure if that guy's hot or not yet, though. I keep going back and forth on it, but yeah. He's just like, I loved the fact that he's huge. I know, right? Like like when he when him and uh, and and Creed finally meet, for the first time, you're just like, he's massive, man. Like, and Michael B. Jordan is, you know, he's nothing but muscle, but he is like a foot short. I, I will, you're just like, oh my God, he's going to die. Yeah, the, fight, <laughs> the fight scenes, I think, in this movie especially, um, I think have an edge a little bit over Creed is that, yeah, when they are actually fighting, I mean, like every punch is like a fucking freight train just hitting poor Michael B. Jordan. And you're just like, oh, you feel that because- Dude is a giant. I I was just sitting there thinking like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I should not be rooting for this person, but I think I am. And now I just need a movie where like him and Henry Cavill fight each other. And also I can wonder if he's hot or not. And then I can have a lot of confusing thoughts. Um, but well, either way. I, I do think you kind of root for him because you see what's happening. Yeah. And, and you see why he's fighting and why he feels that he has to fight. And... And even in the few scenes, he doesn't say that much, but even but the few scenes where he does, you get that pain coming out of him. And in much the same way that you felt, I think, for Donnie back uh, in the first film, that that same sense of like, I have to prove myself. I have to I have to fix the past uh, in some way. And and I have to be the one to do it. And you see that in him. And so, yeah, nearing the end, I was just like, how are they going to pull this off? Like, how is this all going to play out with the the requirements basically of the narrative um so yeah it was interesting just give me a drago melodrama where brigitte nielsen <laughs> is just making side i'm not a hundred percent convinced that her and her son did not have some weird sexy side eye with each other at a certain point i again i was very <laughs> very intrigued in their story i just i wanted more where is that movie it gave that sounds like an Amazon Prime series that needs to be made. There is such a need for an Amazon Prime <laughs> series. He does not even need to speak English. We don't need words, but... We subtitle it. Creature. <laughs> <sighs> so good. Um, Kim, what have you been watching this week? 
TV. I actually haven't had any screenings this week. I get back into screenings next week and kind of there's that last mad push till Christmas. Uh, this week I have been doing a lot of British crime procedurals, actually. <laughs> so classic, Kim. Yep, 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 yep. Um, the And I know I've tweeted about it, so people have probably seen it. I have Binged through the so far the first four in the only the series Shetland, brooding yeah. brooding Scottish detectives, totally my jam. <laughs> and I'm com- coming at it from a critic perspective. Some of the most beautifully shot scenes I've ever you know beautifully shot things I've ever seen, just in terms of thinking watching some of these shows and thinking about it in terms of what a lot of what we see on cable on you know basic cable network things like our law and orders these things are leaps and bounds this show in particular above what we get over here and just the shooting the use of landscapes the character development I may or may not have started on a full binge on an actor and there will be a thirst trap coming because it's already written. Um, And it's, (laughs) I'm in love with it. I love how she's just like, I already wrote it. Deal with it. Oh yeah. It's written. I believe it's scheduled to Steven Robertson people. If you're looking for it, it's, Oh, he's got, he's got pretty blue eyes and, blonde and very very scottish yes 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 um in terms of narratively they have the main character jimmy perez is his name he is a detective inspector in shetland especially season three i will say i cried because he was he's He's police inspector goals. That police inspector that you want as a woman in a town. He's what you need. He's what you want. They make some such brilliant points. I mean, because they're dealing with rape. These shows always do. But making points that we make on this podcast every week in terms of why women don't come forward, why women don't testify. This is such... Just, it's an amazing show. If if you in any way like the Luthers, like the like the Lewises, like the British crime procedurals, make sure you're watching this one. It's something that's not to be missed. Awesome, classic Kim. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have anything else on tap for this week. I don't have any screenings. I don't think I have any screenings till the week after I go see Aquaman. I have I have Mary Queen of Scots I'm not and uh, maybe the basis of on the basis of sex. I'm, I'm going to bet five crisp dollars that after she sees uh, Mary Queen of Scots, Kim's going to be all. I wrote a thirst trap on Jack Loudon. I already wrote it. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, there will be. There's already one. <laughs> oh, well, then I'll so. just keep my five. <laughs> it hasn't been written yet, but it will be there. See, okay. see, see. There you go. Um, He's, oh, I was, I was in love with him after Dunkirk. He was my phone wallpaper for a long time. Um, I'm glad that you could identify anybody in Dunkirk because they all that look accent. The same to me. <laughs> I, if my David Tennant doesn't fool anyone, it is the there, there's something about the Scottish accent. Well, you'll have a lot of fun with Mary Queen of Scots than him. <laughs> Something happens in that movie where I was just sitting there like, okay, 
If I just envision David Tennant with his hair short, will it work? No, no. David Tennant no. really, he's just kind of like looking like Nostradamus and pontificating. Um, uh. But Jack Loudon, you'll be pleased. And I use that term deliberately. <laughs> pleased. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Um. So there's that. I don't have on the basis of sex or anything fun like that. I get to go see fucking Aquaman. Ugh. Not excited. My friend's excited, but I'm not excited. I think it's Aquaman and Welcome to Marwin next week. Yeah. Oh, Sam's Yeah, yeah, that's my life. Uh, but but you can always find out what we have going on at our Twitter at Citizen Dame Pod. Um I will throw out a couple a couple programming notes. We did record our Suicide Squad commentary. That will be coming to Patreon soon. And we also yeah, have, we did. We also have two winners. We have two winners. Um, we were giving away a copy of Kino's Pioneers uh, Women Filmmakers series that um, Lauren had reviewed on the podcast and the website a couple uh, last week. Kino actually is giving us a copy to give away. And we had asked people on Twitter to retweet the review and list their fe- favorite female filmmakers in order to enter. And Lauren, who is our winner? Uh, the winner is Etna Nina Gilder. Uh, so yes, congratulations. Because so Congrats. many of you retweeted and didn't actually give your favorite female filmmakers. Dear God. Yes, you really need to listen to the <laughs> to the rule. Um, so Nanina, if you're listening, please uh, get in touch with us. Uh, we'll, we'll follow you and make sure we can DM or you can uh, actually email us your address, citizendamepod at gmail.com, and we will make sure that you get your copy. Thank you to Kino for giving us one to give away. Um, also, I mentioned at the beginning of November that any of our patrons, uh, any new patrons and old patrons that joined in the month of November would be eligible for a fantastic prize from Citizen Dame HQ. Spoiler, it's my house. Um, And it turns out that we do have a winner there. So patron Brian B, you are the winner of a mysterious prize pack of goodies. So uh, definitely um, make sure that I have your address. I think I have most of the patrons' addresses already, but I don't remember. So definitely get in touch with me uh, either via Patreon or again, email us. Uh, and we will make sure that we get your prizes out to you. We will have more contests into the new year. So if you did not win either of the prizes today, there will be more opportunities to do it next time. Um, but as always, get in touch with us. Keep an eye on what we're doing at Citizen Dame Pod. If you are of the Facebook variety, you can check us out at facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. Once again, our- we do have a few followers over there, you know. Bless their souls. <laughs> you can uh, check out our email, which is citizendamepod at gmail.com. Email us suggestions, questions, comments, all of that. We always have our website up, which is citizendamepod.com, where we have our show notes. So if you want to see a trailer, you want to find an article, you can check out our show notes. Kim has her regular Feminist Fridays, which I'm pretty sure is just being redubbed the Gene Harlow reviews. Um, There's only a few more to go. uh, I I love them, so I'm not complaining here. Uh, uh, Lauren also has her series Damestruck, looking at films that are available to stream that are not on Filmstruck, because Filmstruck doesn't exist anymore. Thanks, people. Uh, Thanks, Warner Media, actually. Uh, You can also find reviews. I promise... That review of what I for what I did for love on Mojave will be happening this week, um, and 
So good. Um, and then you can check out our top fives. This week we did our Christmas movies we hate. And three out of four games actually all agreed on one movie. So if you want to find out what Christmas movie we all almost hate, you can check it out there. Uh, we're also going to be doing a couple listener suggested or Patreon suggested top fives in the coming weeks. Um, if you do do want to get uh, a little more bang for your buck, you can head over to patreon.com slash citizen dame. We have tiers starting at just a dollar. $3 gets you a pin as well as a wealth of perks. We do have all sorts of stuff up there right now, including our boyfriend draft, bonus episodes. We are uh, already editing, uh, as again, I mentioned already, our Suicide Squad full-length audio commentary. You can watch Suicide Squad with our thoughts in the background. Um, that will be coming soon, and that will be Patreon only. So if you want to get in on that, you can do that at patreon.com slash citizendame. And if you want to rock some Citizen Dame merch, you can head over to Zazzle.com slash Citizen Dame. We have a bunch of stuff uh, definitely on our store already. And we have a bunch of awesome things, including our Miss Your Pine notebook. I'm just going to keep keep mentioning that because it's amazing and you should have it. You should you deserve that in your home. Um, and right now you can get uh, a lot of uh, a couple couple bucks off uh, between 50, 60, all sorts of things with the code. I had the code and now the code is gone. Let's get the code back. The code Z holiday Zaz. You could put that in and get some money off whatever you purchase. So go get that notebook. You, someone in your life deserves that. Okay, just just reminding you. Um, and as always, you can follow us on our individual Twitters. You can check out Karen Peterson <sighs> on, <laughs> on Twitter at Karen M. Peterson. I am on Twitter at Journeys underscore Film. Kim, where are you? I'm at kpierce 624 And Lauren Humphreys Brooks. I am at LH Business. And we will, we'll be back next week, right? I think we're taking a break. Until I think we are. T- I think we are taking this is our holiday hiatus start. No, I think we have one more. We have one more. I want to say we have one more. one more. So, so we will be doing one more episode before we go on our holiday break. Maybe we'll have some uh, Citizen Dame awards to give out. Ooh, I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to ponder that. Maybe if you guys are good, we'll give you some holiday awards. Um, but either way, we'll be back next week. This is uh, Kristen, Kim, Lauren. And Karen Peterson. <laughs> we'll talk to you all next week. But you don't think I can beat him? Is that what you're trying no. to say? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm not going to be here forever. And what's that supposed to mean? It means you got to do some smart thinking. But oh, you want to talk about smart decisions, Rock? You in this house all alone. Who been taking care of you? Me. I've been here for you. Who else you got? Listen, I'm taking this fight with or without you.